I'm Scott Abraham from ABC7 in Washington, D.C. You know who it is. Travis Thomas Experience. This is Eric Edholm of Yahoo Sports. This is Mitch Tischler. This is Al Galdi, and you're listening to The Big Douglas Show. All right, this is The Big Douglas Show featuring rapper Big Poop and our guest today, senior NBA writer for Sports Illustrated, Howard Beck. Howard, thanks for coming on today. No, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Uh, I was thinking earlier, Pooh, I got somebody was talking about the show the other day and they mentioned something about giving us our flowers for somebody to come on. It got me to thinking, at, at what age do we stop using, you know, or start using new lingo? I mean, I, I think I just stick with, uh, you know, giving people their propers, but uh, maybe that's just me. Am I yelling people off the lawn or how do we work that? <laughs> man I, I i think you just use the lingo you're you're familiar and comfortable with and you know it, it's new lingo every two three months uh coming on uh, the scene <laughs> um i'm an old guy myself so i can't keep up with all the fresh fresh new lingo that that happens i'm an old i'm an old get off my lawn guy in that regard <laughs> Howard, how does that work for you in, a, in an industry that's basically getting younger every year? It is getting younger every year. Uh, it makes me feel old, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> I've been covering the league, for, uh, the, the, NBA, uh, the NBA for 24 years. So um, the number of times like lingo, trends, fashion, whatever has changed in that period of time, um, it's, I've, I've, lost, I've lost track. But like I'm on Twitter way too much. And um, the give fill in the blank their flowers uh i feel like it really exploded over the last few months i'm sure by the time i see it it means it's already been out there for probably years and so i'm gonna be way behind but uh it's unavoidable now and like the first time i saw it i was like huh flower why oh okay like a bouquet whatever okay fine i guess and then all of a sudden i just started seeing it everywhere and um it's fine whatever i i, I don't see myself using that phrase i'd probably sound like even a bigger doofus than i would normally if i uh if i tried to pull it off so i'm not going to <laughs> yeah it's all about using even when you hear the new lingo it's about using it in the right context which a lot of us older older guys tend to mess up from time to time so, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I stick to what i know absolutely amen Howard, uh, if I'm right, you worked the beat for the Lakers during Shaq and Kobe, then worked the Knicks beat during Carmelo years. But, but I would suggest as a guy like myself that had Sports Illustrated covers up on the wall, that that Sports Illustrated gig is something special. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Very much so. When I was covering Shaq and Kobe, I was at the L.A. Daily News which is, you know, like the second paper in the market, um, generously speaking, not the LA Times, but great gig, great place to live, loved covering them. But I was at the LA Daily News. When I got the, the job at the New York Times in 2004, like that was a moment. That was huge for me as someone who, you know, you know, my, my years as, as an aspiring journalist, my teenage years and my college years, like the New York Times is, is, you know, it's the pinnacle of, of American journalism, as far as I'm concerned, print journalism, best newspaper in the, in the world. Uh, but Sports Illustrated was the magazine that I grew up on, because if, you know, if it's if it's a more narrow goal here, right, like journalism, 
New York Times, but sports writing specifically and tied back to my fandom as a kid that got me into reading about sports. SI was always the pinnacle and the dream job from the moment that I decided to start down this path. And so um, I, I never knew if that would ever actually come to pass. Um, it's, it, you know, and, and, you know, the, as I say, like the New York times was a huge, huge moment in and, in and of itself. Um, it's, it's wild now that I will have checked off both of these very large boxes on any, um, any young sports writers dream list. Um, it's, it's amazing. Feel very, very fortunate. And, uh, yeah, really, really glad to be there. Started, uh, with SI in, uh, in late December. And, um, so still early on, and I, I still haven't met most of the people that I I'm working with and working for because it's pandemic. We can't meet anybody. Um, so it, it's been an interesting way to, to start a new gig. Uh, but it's, it's, it's been fantastic. I, I, I love SI and, you know, I have for, uh, let's just say a very long time. I don't want to actually date myself that badly. It's been, a, but I've been a loyal, loyal subscriber for, let's say in the neighborhood of decades. Nice. How being that you covered the Lakers team, can you speak, um, a little bit to the legacy that of Elgin Baylor, who recently just passed away. Yeah, you know, um, before my time, I don't go back that far. Um, <laughs> but you know, and it's interesting too. Let me start with the the framework for how I was first introduced to who Elgin Baylor was when I first got there. Cause I'm from Northern California originally. So I didn't even grow up in a, in a Laker crazed environment. I was not steeped in, in the knowledge of, of the Lakers history. When I first got to LA to, to cover the Lakers in 1997, in 97, the Clippers of course are their GM is Elgin Baylor, who I know as being a Laker legend and being an all-time NBA great and a hall of famer and all that. But by that time, it's already fairly well established. One, the Clippers are awful. This, this pathetic, sad sack franchise with this terrible owner. We didn't even know how truly, truly terrible Donald Sterling was until I think later. But at a minimum, you knew he was cheap and ran that franchise uh, terribly. Um, and Elgin Baylor was hamstrung by that, but he was also part of that. And so it, it, it sucks that my... And I think for a lot of people in LA and certainly people of a certain generation and younger would just know him as, Oh yeah, he's the guy who ran the Clippers all those years when, you know, they, you know, then they drafted Michael Olawa candy and, you know, and then, then they briefly had this fun team with, you know, Quentin Richardson and Darius smiles and these guys are, um, but for the most part, you just, he just got associated with the Clippers uh, cause he was there a, a pretty long time. And um, you know, Elgin Baylor's greatness as a player is, is overlooked in a lot of ways for, for a bunch of different reasons, not least of which those, of course, we just don't have as much familiarity with the imagery from back then. There's less footage. There's less, people haven't been exposed to it as much. But for people who don't know, Elgin Baylor is the reason that we eventually had Dr. J and Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant and anyone else in that 6'6 range who are high flyers, these aerial acrobats, incredibly creative, um, in midair, the, the, the hang time and the things that you could do with the ball to avoid a defender or, or, or make a basket while elevating, avoiding, soaring, like all of that, everything that we think about, like the most fun, the most exhilarating aspects of the NBA, this, this incredibly artistic game, 
goes back to Elgin Baylor because nobody did those things until Elgin Baylor did them. Um, he was also uh, very strong uh, in, in civil rights movement at the time. Um, the story has been circulated a number of times in the last couple of days since he passed in all the, the tributes to him about him. You know, I think they were in West Virginia with uh, and he, he, you know, with the Lakers and he the, the hotel does not want to allow in anyone on the team who's black. And they basically said, like, we're, we're out of here. Um, and um, it led to the NBA, I think, creating a policy where, like, they weren't going to contract with hotels that had any, any discriminatory policies. Uh, he was part of, of course, a, a, a threatened player boycott when, they, I, I believe, when they were first unionizing, but at the All-Star game where he was, you know, the, the Lakers owner at the time was threatening them with their jobs. And, he was, and they, they, they stood fast and, and, uh, as, as the players, and he was a huge voice in that. So it goes well beyond his, his, uh, his basketball abilities, but Elgin, um, you know, you can go look up the, the numbers is, you know, I think he's third highest career average in NBA history. Um, just one of the all-time greats. I did not really get to know him. I was fully immersed. You know, the thing with the Shaq and Kobe era was, as you guys know, a lot of drama. Um, and so it was kind of all consuming. And so I spent, um, you know, a lot of time, all my time, um, immersed in that. And so the only time I even saw the Clippers was when the Lakers and Clippers were playing each other. So, and Elgin kind of kept close counsel too. He was not somebody who was, was really, um, you know, uh, you know, real, um, eager to, to engage or chit chat. Um, that's not to say that he, he didn't have that relationship with some members of the media, but by the time I got there, I think he was, I would say, you know, a little closed off. Um, so I, I really did not, know him well at all but uh obviously a big loss for the nba and, and basketball in general one of the great players i'll always remember in, in my mind is the syracuse carmelo anthony just one of the greatest uh players i can remember at that level but when he gets remembered with the rest of that draft class i think people will forget about just how good he was maybe still is I wonder how he gets lost in the shuffle with those other great guys from that class. Yeah, he's going to finish top 10 all time in scoring for sure. I don't know that he can get to top five. I did this exercise recently just to see if the math uh, worked out. I don't think he can get there. He'd have to score a lot of points in the next few years and he's up there in years. So, um, but he's going to be top 10. And so he's going to go down at a minimum as one of the all time great scorers. Will people consider him one of the all time great players, right? Those that can sometimes be a different um, connotation. One of the great scorers, one of the great players. Like Dominique, one of the all time great scorers. All time great player? Eye of the beholder kind of thing. Um, you got to win in this league sometimes for people to really recognize you and elevate you to, to, that, um, to that strata, that echelon. And LeBron's got his rings and Dwayne Wade's got his rings and Chris Bosh has his rings. Um, obviously some of those came together. Uh, LeBron also got others elsewhere and, and Wade got one with Shaq before LeBron had arrived. And so, you know, it depends on, on how you evaluate this, right? Some people are caught up only in the rings. I wouldn't judge Carmelo. I don't, I wouldn't judge any player by rings alone. I think that's foolish and, and incredibly over, overly simplistic. However, it is fair to judge a guy based on the totality of his career and his postseason success in particular. And, you know, Carmelo forced his way to the Knicks a year after he had been, well, he, it was two years by the time he got to the Knicks, but the, at the time he started agitating for the trade, he was a year removed from the Western conference finals. 
Nuggets best season. And it wasn't enough. He wanted, he, he forces way out at a time that I thought the Nuggets were actually on a pretty good path. And they had Masai Ujiri, one of the best GMs in the league. We were just starting to learn about how really good Masai was, but Carmelo wanted New York and that's fine. But by forcing his way to New York, by not waiting for free agency, by making it a trade, it robbed the Knicks of a lot of assets. It hamstrung them for years to come. He himself years later, finally acknowledged that, that yeah, he kind of put them in, in a tough spot and it made it harder to build around him. And the style of Carmelo's game was also very much a, you know, isolation, um, dominating the ball quite a bit, was never a high assist guy. And so, you know, really, really talented, an incredible score, a, a score that, that teams feared. But the, the, the lack of postseason success, no conference finals since that Western Conference finals back in whatever it was, I think 2009, um, it, it, it makes it hard to, to, uh, to, you know, to, when you put him in con when you put his career in context of everybody else's postseason success, taking into account everything, I do think it's fair to put him down a notch or two, not about rings, but postseason success overall. Did you lead your team somewhere? Did you make, did you make them better? And because he wasn't a, 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 uh, a, Eager playmaker, again, never had great assist totals for a guy with the ball in his hand so much. Wasn't particularly dedicated to defense for a lot of those years. Um, those things are all fair game. Um, and it's not to be overly harsh. He's a great guy. Loved covering Carmelo for the couple of years that I was still on the Knicks. Um, you know, we only, we really only overlapped. He got there in 2011. I left the Times in 2013, so it was really only a couple seasons. I mean, I'm still in New York, of course, but I wasn't covering the Knicks after that. So, um, but great guy to deal with. Love talking to him. Really, all, great with the media. Always accountable. Never held anything against you. He's not not a guy with grudges, whatever. Like you're just a really good dude um, and a, a great scorer. And you know, if people want to draw the line between great score and great player, I think the things I brought up are the that's where you might draw the line. But that's that's again, that's in the eye of the beholder. As someone who covered the Knicks for, for a period of time, besides being hamstrung by the Carmelo trade, what happened to the New York Knicks? <laughs> they, they used to be this team that people, people longed to, to go play for. And, you know, in, in the garden, it, it represents basketball, but nobody wants to yeah. go there anymore. <laughs> well, we'll see. I mean, you know, there you can start to see the outline of 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 a Knicks potential renaissance here. I don't want to say an actual renaissance because that's giving it's it's placing way too much stock in a very short period of time so far. But new front office again, they've had many since in the time I've been in New York. But a new front office, Thibodeau as coach, taking largely the same roster as last year, most of the roster, and taking a team that was terrible, one of the worst in in the East to being nightly competitive in the thick of the playoff race, um, hovering around 500, and we'll see where they end up. Maybe they make the playoffs. Maybe they make the play-in. I've said this many times, and I'll say it again. I don't think it matters whether they make the playoffs or not. This, this season should be judged by progress in terms of the development of their young players and their just general competitiveness, and are they earning respect again? Because to your question, part of the reason that they have been as bad as they've been as long as they've been um, it, it, it just kind of compounds, right? 
the worse you are, the more dysfunctional you are, the more times you fire the front office and the fire the head coach, the more times you have incidents like, you know, ejecting Charles Oakley, all of these things add up and it creates an image of this is not a place that, that I should entrust my career if I'm a player, especially if you're a high caliber player, if you're a star, an all-star superstar. And so guys have steered away. Is what they've done so far this season enough to make guys reconsider? I think they've got people's attention now. I think people are saying, okay, look at this, you know, it's only a few months weighed against years. So you're not going to, you know, say, okay, everything's fine now immediately, but they're, they seem to be on the right path. And I think this front office is doing some things smarter than the last few did in terms of the way they're, they're managing assets and not overspending for, you know, some middling free agent, um, being protective of their picks so far and, and just kind of take it methodically. And, and one of the things that I've seen, so I've been here for, you know, 17 years now in New York and, you know, including nine of those where I was covering the Knicks day to day. And, you know, the Knicks repeat certain things, certain problems they repeat over and what's, you know, that, that whole thing about, you know, the definition of an insanity is, mm-hmm. uh, you know, <laughs> doesn't work and you keep doing it. Um, paraphrasing. Um, but that's the Knicks. Um, they're always swinging for the fences. They're always trying to win the trade, win the back pages of the tabs and do something flashy, get a big name. And that big name might be Carmelo Anthony. It might be Amari Stoudemire with his, you know, uninsurable knees back in the day, though that was a really exciting moment. Like that was an exhilarating moment for the Knicks, for New York. And the first few months of, of his time here was a lot of fun to watch too. Those teams were really enjoyable, but still they're always doing these, making these big swings. And they're going for names. So it's, you know, whether that's Isaiah Thomas, because he's a name. Well, you know, is, is he the right choice as, as team president? The, you know, Larry Brown, a name. Was he the right choice as coach? <laughs> Were he and Isaiah right for each other, to say nothing of, of Marbury in that mix? Um, Phil Jackson, <laughs> never run a team before, but we're going to hire him as team president. You know, over and over and over again, they're going for name value, whether it's the, the coach, the GM or president, the, the fading star players they're constantly making the same mistake and it's about trying to, to win the headline, trying to win the press conference instead of building something sustainable, something solid. Um, and, you know, we always talk about culture in the NBA and what's a winning culture and which teams have good culture, which teams have bad culture, all this stuff. And that, that can get worn out a little as a term, but it, it, it does have significance. And there are teams, you know, if I asked you guys, what are the teams that you think have a great culture in the NBA. There are like three or four you would say name off the top of your head and that everybody would agree on. And it's, it doesn't even take that long. Like I'll even say, I'll ask like, who are the teams? When I say great culture in the NBA, like who do you think of immediately? Uh, Golden state. Sure. <laughs> um, uh, the Lakers now. Sure. And Ah, who is that third one? Uh. Well, I would see, I would say like Miami, San Antonio, San Austin, Antonio. Yeah. Yeah. Toronto. Um, and it's not just because of recent championships. It's about, you know what those teams are about. Like Jimmy Butler went to Miami because he knew exactly what heat culture was and it fit who Jimmy Butler is. And that's identifiable. And we all know what it is. And we all know who that starts with. It starts with Pat Riley. But, you know, the the ownership of a team has a lot to do with whether a, a culture is positive, negative, consistent. Um, 
then the Knicks have one of the worst owners in the NBA and James Dolan. They, that's pretty well established. Um, I don't think anybody or very few people would, would dispute that. And one of the ways you identify a bad culture with a, with a sports team is, you know, one, do they have any identifiable values as, as a team that you think are positive, right? Like you look at them and you say, well, what, what are the values of the Knicks? Well, I don't know. They, they, they change every, every six months or every couple of years because they keep flushing away front offices and coaches. In fact, I did the, ran the numbers recently. The Knicks have had, uh, they lead the league in front office changes and coaching changes in the last 20 years, which is roughly Dolan's time as owner. You can't get a consistent culture. You can't get a consistent set of, of values and, and a, a, a structure for consistency and consistent um, uh, uh, team building if you're constantly changing course and constantly putting somebody new in and you can say, well, they were justified when they fired this guy or fired that guy. Cause it wasn't working. And yeah, okay. That's, that's fine. But that means you, you hired the wrong person. <laughs> like, even if we all agree, Phil Jackson was not the right choice as, as, as president and he wasn't, but you hired him. <laughs> so that's still on you. You, you made that error in judgment. I don't think Steve Mills was a great choice and he's hired him like 17 times <laughs> in the last 20 years. Um, so, you know, that's, that's where you get, you know, and this, it's a long-winded answer, but there's a lot that's happened in 20 years. That's, that's where the Knicks are. They're trying to, this latest group, Leon Rose and his group, along with Tom Thibodeau, are trying to kind of reverse uh, everything that, that has happened for the last 20 years and establish a new understanding of what the Knicks are and what they're about. And again, early returns are good, but, you know, these are, these are, early steps um they're still a long ways from being you know perennial contenders and i don't know like if the you know free agency open tomorrow would stars and their agents see them differently now than they did one year ago two years ago five years ago maybe um might want a bigger sample size before we know that it's it's funny it sounds so much like the uh the washington football team right where it's like I mean, that sounded like you explaining them. You can do all these things and head in the right direction. But if the same man owns the team, they won't get out of the way for smart people to do what it yeah. is that they do well. You know, what are you supposed to do about that? Well, um, and you, uh, real quick, Doug, because you said something important. Um, I always say this about owners in the NBA. The job of the owner is hire the, the right people, smart people, and then get the hell out of the way. Out of the way Cut the right. checks and listen, by all means. Ask tough questions. Press your team president or your GM on these decisions. Is this really the right trade? Explain why it's the right trade. Explain why we're going to drop $200 million on this particular free agent. By all means, ask tough questions. Press them. Hold them accountable. Be involved even. But there's a fine line between being involved and being meddling. And, you know, the first step is hire the right people and then get the hell out of the way. The problem is a lot of these owners don't know how to hire the right people. They don't even know who the right people are. And so they hire somebody who's close to them or that they trust or that they've got a relationship with. And Dolan has done that many, many times of hiring somebody who either was recommended by a buddy of his or was just somebody that he really liked. He obviously really liked Steve Mills. He liked Isaiah. He still talks to Isaiah and, and has him counsel him all the time, despite everything that went wrong during Isaiah's official time with, with the Knicks. You got to just find the best basketball people, put them in place and then get out of the way. Howard, you're also one half of the crossover podcast. I'm, I'm curious uh, because we get mixed answers on this when we ask writers, do you prefer the podcasting or the writing? <laughs> uh, 
Um, writing is torture, <laughs> right? And that's like, what we hear. The best, the best thing about a podcast is that, you know, you interview somebody for a story, you interview somebody for the podcast. Let's say it's the same person and you have this great conversation. Talk to them for 30 minutes, really enjoyable. Love the, the feedback you got, um, had fun with it. When the podcast is over, as you guys know, you hit stop. <laughs> and I don't even know what happens after that because I don't do any of the technical stuff. <laughs> Somebody else does all the like producing, processing, uploading, What I don't even have to deal with that. So the podcast is great because when it's over, it's just over. When that same interview is over, but it's for a story, now I have to transcribe. I got to listen to myself and my own stupid rambling questions again. I got I to gotta, you know, type, keep up with the, the recording when I'm replaying it. Um, then I got to organize my thoughts. I probably have to do five other interviews as well. And then I got to write and, uh, you know, as I say, writing is torture. And so, um, <laughs> it's, I love doing both and the podcasting, you know, I started, uh, podcasting, I think it's been four years now, almost, um, when I was at Bleacher Report, when we started the full 48 and at the time I was a little leery, I'd done a, some radio for NBA radio and Sirius XM. Um, I'm like, am I a podcast host? I don't know. Do I do Does this make sense for me? I'm, a, I'm really a writer, but this seems like fun. And it's, it's great to expand your repertoire at any stage of your career. And I, I got to the point where like, I, I realized, oh my God, I, I really like this. This is fun. This is great. I, I really enjoy this a lot. I want to keep this as part of, of, of whatever my routine is, wherever I am for the rest of my career. And it, it just, it's, it's a different, um, it's a different muscle to flex than, than writing. I like having a balance. Um, I, you know, in the years that I was a beat writer, I was writing at the times, I think I averaged like 260 stories a year or something covering the Knicks primarily. And, and then the rest of the NBA, when, you know, when the Knicks were out, I would go cover the playoffs and cover the finals. And so it's a lot. When I was at the LA daily news covering the Lakers, my byline count back then just, it was a different routine. There was more, was over 300. So I, I, by the time I started doing a podcast, I'd written literally thousands of stories you know, some shorter, some longer, whatever, but still thousands of stories after a while, like, all right, it, it's, it's nice to try something different and, and mix it up so that some days I'm writing, some days I'm podcasting, some days I'm doing video. Um, there are the, the beauty of the way media has evolved by this point in my career is that there are a lot of different things you can do and actually kind of need to do. You need to be able to do a lot of stuff, um, to uh, to have a career these days and and make yourself uh, attractive to to you know to employers, so um, I'm I'm glad media's evolved the way it has. You know, I could have spent my entire career just writing, and I probably would have been fine. But uh, this is actually more enjoyable getting to kind of mix it up. Howard, with the addition of the play-in tourney for the NBA, they they're carrying it over this year from the bubble. Do you yeah. think? that this trade deadline, which happens tomorrow, is going to be uh, – or can you explain how there's more sellers or more buyers uh, during the trade deadline this year as opposed to a regular season when it will be only eight teams and you'll kind of know by yeah. this point? Yeah, so as, you, as, as we all record this right now, we are 24 hours and 30 minutes away from the, the trade deadline. So I, I want to put that in context in case anything has happened by the time people listen to this. But um, it could be a wild next 24 hours. It could be a dud. If it is a dud, we are all going to point to the play-in tournament as a big reason for it because now all you have to do, excuse me, is finish within the top 10 in the conference, right? 
15 teams in each conference, two or three in each that are definitely, definitely out. And everybody else feels like, well, I don't know if I can make it to eighth, but I can get to 10th. Mm-hmm. So suddenly teams that in a different year would have been pulling the plug, we're pivoting to the youth. We're going to, you know, give our young guys a whatever, you know, we're going to make up injuries for our veterans, all the stuff that we were normally used to seeing um, might not happen in the same way. And so if everybody believes they're in it, then yes, you have fewer sellers. And so if we get a dud of a trade deadline, I think that will be a big reason. And a lot of people have speculated that that's what will in fact happen. Um, but this league has a way of surprising you. And there are certainly a lot of teams that are motivated to make moves. And if I'll, you know, I will potentially live to regret this prediction. There are three names that I feel like are, are most likely to move. I don't want to say definite, but it really, really feels like there's a lot of momentum on Oladipo, on Aaron Gordon, on Kyle Lowry. If, if some combination of those three or all three go like that, that's about what I expect now. Everything after that, I'm not sure. But um, you definitely have fewer teams that are ready to just kind of like blow it up and tear down and, you know, play for next year, play for ping pong balls. And that's the other piece of this too, of course, is that when they, you know, enacted lottery reform a couple of years ago and changed the odds, you know, now it's, you know, finishing with a bottom three record or the worst record doesn't guarantee you of a top three pick anymore or a top four pick. And so, you know, there's a lot more volatility in the lottery and a lot less incentive to tank, which was the point of, of changing the lottery odds. So the combination of that and the play-in tournament could put a damper on all the activity that we hope to see in the next 24 hours. You mentioned the draft. Has that worked the way they had hoped to? I mean, it's tough for teams like our Wizards that do bad and you're hoping for good picks, and it seems like we never get that high. Um, and, and as a fan, it, it's frustrating, right, to – to have your team be real bad and then not be rewarded at the end for, for going through that misery is the, what does the NBA feel this has worked? I think they're happy with it so far in that it does seem to be changing behavior a little bit. Teams do, do seem to be less eager to just bottom out, pull the plug on everything, strip their, their, their roster um, or, or, you know, shut guys down, down the stretch. Um, Cause not every tanking, um, example is the same right people think of the sixers primarily because it was a multi-year tank and it was very brazen and it was very obvious and and direct this is what we're doing and we're gonna do it for multiple years because the idea of the, the the process was not you know just be bad and ace every pick it was no no, no. the draft is volatile the draft is, is unpredictable get as many bites at the apple as you can to come up with some stars and it worked. They got Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid, two top 15 players. If you, the reason you do a multi-year tank is because if you only did two years in a row, well, one of those years you might miss, you might get Jaleel Okafor. Um, you might get, you know, an Evan Turner, you might get a Hashim to beat. You might get, you know, there are plenty of top three, top five picks that have not turned out to be stars or much less superstars. So they gave themselves the most opportunities possible. Most teams didn't go that route. Most teams, when we talk about tanking, it's, Nobody has the stomach for that. It's a, it's a, you know, pull the plug on a given year. Or maybe they're bad a couple of years in a row. Teams that are usually in the lottery, all like the Kings have been in the lottery for, I think it's 14 years running now, potentially coming up on a 15th year. Um, that's not because the Kings have been tanking for 15 years. They've just been incompetent. <laughs> and, and the lottery reform was aimed at um, dissuading teams from ever trying again what the Sixers did 
or, or even the more modest versions of that that you sometimes see. But the idea of a reverse order draft in the first place was help the teams that need the most help. Well, the teams that need the most help, maybe it's because they had injuries, maybe they just had bad luck, or maybe they're just bad at their jobs. Maybe they have a terrible owner and terrible GMs and they draft terribly, they sign the, they, they, they give out bad contracts and then yeah they just they just suck they suck because they're bad not because they're it was intentional those are one thing i like this is why i always say like with the sixers i respected it on this level i would rather if i were rooting for a team i'd rather have them be bad by design than by incompetence and most teams that are perennially in the lottery it's by incompetence um so it sucks for a team like yours that it's some combination of some bad decisions and some bad luck but you know lottery reform does punish a team like the wizards and some others that are certainly trying to, to, to make progress. But if you can't draft high and we, we know that most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time, the best talent is within those top two, three picks. It's hard. It, it's hard. I don't know what the answer is there exactly, but um, it's tough. And it's especially tough for markets that are not destination markets because there's only three ways to get star talent in this league draft trade and free agency and there's a lot of markets in this this league where you are not a free agent destination so if you're the memphis grizzlies you're you're not landing kevin durant or lebron james or anybody of that 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 stature as a free agent you want you can try to trade for them but they're going to signal ahead of time a lot i don't want to stay there and i'm not going to sign an extension so now two tools are already off the board now you're down to just the draft and if the draft's is a crapshoot if the lottery odds are the way they are now, or if they were even flatter, now you really have, you know, almost no shot at, at getting top level talent. So, you know, these are things the NBA spends a lot of time thinking about. And, um, you know, it, it's, I don't know that the system is, is anywhere close to perfect. I don't know if, that there is a perfect system, but that's what they're constantly trying to adjust. I was speaking of incompetence. I do want to ask you, uh, what is the national opinion on the Wizards um, in, in, in the organization? Yeah, I mean, I, I can only speak for myself. I don't know that there's some great consensus out there from whether it's national writers or whether it's rest of the league, other, other teams, other executives. Um, I'll just say that, you know, and I've, I've had this, I, I, I have found myself in this position with regard to the Wizards for the last couple of years. And I, I said this directly to Tommy Shepard on my podcast last summer. And I said, tell me why I'm wrong. Um, I think Bradley Beal should ask out. I think it's actually best for all parties if, if the Wizards and Bradley Beal part ways. Um, and it's, it's not any uh, judgment on any of them. It's more that I, the Wizards are kind of stuck. You know, they've got, I was looking at for next season, Beal Westbrook, and Bertans are making, I think, 95 million. That's almost the entire salary cap between three players, one of whom, Westbrook, is on the decline, one of whom, Bertans, has not lived up to the contract. And then there's Bradley Beal. Um, I, I respect the hell out of him for never demanding a trade and saying, I want to finish my career in Washington. Uh, it, it takes a lot to decide I'm going to do that and I'm going to stick it out. And I can do nothing but respect that. But when I look at the books, when I look at who they have, I don't know where the path is to title contention for him. And if that's the goal, how does it happen there? Um, unless you have huge leaps, if Denny Avdia and Rui Hachimura become, you know, if not stars, then at least a, a step below that, you got to have some guys just bust out. 
along the way. And I don't know where that's coming from necessarily. And if you trade him, you know, if you can get a sweetheart deal like the, the Thunder got for Paul George or what akin, something akin to what the Pelicans got for Anthony Davis, um, you know, you, you can set yourself up. You can put yourself in a lot better position to, to build out for the next three to five, six years than, than what they've got right now. I feel like they're just kind of stuck. And I thought they were stuck before the wall Westbrook swap because of walls health issues and, and uh, the mileage on him. So um, I'm sorry, that's not a very uh, optimistic <laughs> analysis. Um, but, and I wonder too, like everybody's got their breaking point, you know, a year before James Harden year plus before James Harden demanded his trade, I had sat down with him when he was here in New York for a, a sneaker event. And he had said, I want to finish my career in Houston. I don't want to be a part of a super team. <laughs> I mean, literally those, those, those were the, if not the exact words, those were the sentiments. I don't want to go join up with somebody else. I want guys to come here and I want to finish my career here and I want to win titles in Houston. And a year plus later, he's demanding a trade and going to Brooklyn to create a super team with Kyrie and Kevin Durant. Um, and again, I'm not saying, aha, gotcha, whatever. I'm not blaming him. And I don't, I'm not, I'm not mad about it. Like your priorities change. All of ours do in life. You know, um, I didn't know I was going to live in New York. I didn't know I was going to be here for 17 years. I love it here. Um, you know, things, things change. And so will Bradley Beal wake up one morning and decide, you know what? I gave it my best shot. Just isn't working. And I'm in my prime and I want to make sure I, I give myself a chance to win titles um, or at least be on a team. That's, that's one of the top four or five in the NBA. Then maybe he wakes up one day and, and, and makes that request or, maybe something happens for the wizards, you know, like I, you know, smart people working for that organization. I, you know, there, there may be a, a change in direction or one transaction that changes everything um, that we can't foresee right now. Those things happen too. So uh, I'm not saying it's some foregone conclusion. It's just, that's as I kind of game it out in my own head, that's the way I kind of see it. And the problem there is if, if you trade Beal, it's, to a contender, most likely, right? And then, I mean, you're getting three first-round picks, but if they're all down in the 20s, I mean, I'm not sure what it what what does it get for you, really? Yeah, yeah, it it, it is it is tough in that regard, right? Um, you're you're kind of trading them to a team that's a high-level team, if not a contender, then maybe they're a middle-of-the-pack team that thinks they're going to become a contender by adding him. Um, and by definition, yeah, their their picks are going to be end of first round. You're, you're kind of trading them, hoping that, you know, it'll be like a Nets scenario where the Nets crashed and burned after sending all their picks to Boston and Boston ends up with Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. Um, that's what you're kind of hoping for. Or you're making a deal with a team that has not just their own picks, right? Can you make a deal with a team that has some picks from one of the crappy teams that you think will send, will convey a, a, a higher pick? Um, or you're taking those picks and you're hoping to repackage them for the next star that you're hoping to acquire. Um, or maybe you're using those picks to then offload Westbrook's contract. <laughs> I don't know. Um, there's any number of ways you can, you can go about it, but I just know this, a, a team with uh, an aging Westbrook Beal and Bertans making what he's making, looking at their payroll. It's really tough to see how you make dramatic improvements. Yeah. I, I often wonder if, if the wizards had uh, a new, coaching staff come in 
like the Knicks did with Tom Thibodeau. You, he's running back pretty much the same team that was there last year, yeah. and you see a marked difference if they, if that if something like that could happen for the Wizards because I, I I think that Scott Brooks, while he's well liked, that that situation has run its course in Washington. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, um, sometimes the coaching changes is, is what sparks a team's turnaround, and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes you're just hamstrung by your actual personnel. And what Tibbs has shown in New York in the early uh, – I should say it's more than early. What Tibbs has shown in New York through the first half-plus of this season is you can get a team that was abysmal defensively and with the right coaching, the right approach – get them to become really good defensively. Now they've slipped quite a bit in the last month or so, but still they, they're so uh, diligent on that end of the court that their offensive deficiencies and their lack of high-end offensive talent hasn't hurt them as much. So they've been able to win games that they wouldn't have in prior years just through a, a, a defensive approach that has made them a tough out, as we say, right? So they're always in games and they don't give up. Um, if you look at prior Tibbs teams, there are also sometimes some limits to that, right? Year two, year three, sometimes things start to wane. Year four, you know, he's got a hard driving style. Not everybody responds well to that or will war- will will stay warm to it. You know, it might be great on day one, like, okay, great, great I'm all in. And then after a year or so of it, it's, you, know, you get a little worn out. That has happened. Um, and he's not the only one. There are other coaches who are in that kind of, that, that, that kind of personality. It can be a little bit tough for players and, and not everybody wants, wants to, uh, wants to play for that style. Um, so the early returns are good. Is it sustainable? We'll see. The Knicks still need a lot of upgrades in terms of just sheer talent. The Wizards need a lot of upgrades in terms of sheer talent outside of, of their backcourt. And so a coaching change alone is, is not going to change them. And, and that's the thing too. Like, Tibbs hasn't solved the Knicks problems. If we're comparing and contrasting here, he hasn't solved anything. He has in the short term made them more competitive, more defensive minded. And, and again, as I said earlier, respectable, and they might even make the playoffs, but they still need more talent. Like they're like, it's, it's fine. That's a one year return. Okay, great. We're the eighth seed. Okay, great. We we're in the playoffs. We're not the laughing stock anymore, but you have to keep building on that. And that requires higher level of talent. Like, Everything in the NBA comes back to talent. You know, if you can get a top five player, great. If you can't get a top five player, hopefully you get a couple of top 15 or a couple of top 20, you know, or three top 30, right? Like there's all these different approaches you, you can take because there's only so many guys who are, who are franchise transform, uh, transformative players on their own, right? There's only so many Steph Curry, LeBron, KD types, Kawhi Leonard. Um, so the Knicks still need that guy. And the Wizards... You know, Bradley Beal is one of those guys, but obviously he, he needs a tag team partner and preferably, you know, somebody in the front court, I would think. Absolutely. Howard, we appreciate so much the time you gave us today. We got coming up on the podcast and uh, for the for the magazine. Um, so I trying to think of what so we just had we just posted our, our trade preview podcast on the crossover uh, with again with uh, Chris Mannix and me um, that is up right now the crossover podcast from SI um, next week I imagine we'll be breaking down whatever happens or doesn't happen <laughs> tomorrow um, and uh, I've, we've got uh, our NBA team myself Chris Mannix uh, Chris Herring Michael Pena Rohan Nadkarni. Monday through Friday, we have what we call the morning shoot around. Each one of us has a day of the week. I am on Mondays. So my next piece on the morning shoot around um, 
got an idea for what that might be this coming Monday, but I'll, I'll hold that in reserve for the moment. But uh, you can find my next byline on a uh, topic to be named uh, Monday morning uh, at SI.com. And let, also let the people know where they can find you on Twitter, Howard. Uh, very easy. At Howard Beck. No underscores, no fancy, no numbers in place of letters, no nothing crazy, just at Howard Beck. Pretty easy to spell. Um, you can find me there, but uh, appreciate that. Th- thank you for uh, giving me the plug, and uh, and thanks for having me on. No problem. Thank you. Thank you, Howard. Have a good one. Thanks, guys. All right, take care. All right.